0: because they live in our households, but for children in particular, it can even be almost more upsetting for them to lose a pet than to maybe a relative that they don't spend a lot of time with. And I think just for parents to know that that, that's normal, that the pet's part of their everyday life, and that is a real distraction in their daily routine.
1: There's almost nothing more complicated than having to make decisions for someone else or something else that doesn't have its own voice. I can't speak clearly. And so today's conversation really is about that. It's about our relationships to animals and to pets and these these things that we love so much but have no idea exactly what they want. Right? It's easier in our life to take care of family when you know they can verbalize what they need and what they want. But in this case, we're guessing and we're trying not to project too much of ourselves onto what they want. And so today's conversation is with one of the leaders in the field of understanding and studying the human-animal connection, how we are because of it the impacts it has on us, the way the therapy animals affect us. So I hope if you're really trying to understand more deeply how to navigate that very complicated and extremely beautiful relationship that we have with animals, uh, I think you really enjoyed this episode. Welcome to The Dream Beyond. I'm your host, Nick Tarasio. I'm a CEO, musician, and overall seeker of truth, inspiration, and simply put, how to live the most fulfilling life possible. Growing up surrounded by extremely wealthy and successful people gave me unique and unfiltered perspectives of those who have seemingly made it. And on the Dream Beyond, we're letting you in on what it really takes to achieve your dreams, what happens when it turns out your destination isn't the promised land you were expecting, and how to process the lessons from your past while mapping a course to true fulfillment. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I'm here with an associate professor of human-animal interaction at the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University. She's also a developmental psychologist. Her research focuses on the psychology of the human-animal bond, particularly amongst adolescents and their families. And she serves as a dedicated board member of Tufts Paws for People Therapy Animal Group, showcasing her commitment to enhancing the well-being of individuals through the human-animal bond. Please welcome Dr. Megan Mueller. Thank you for being with here, Megan.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: This is one of my most exciting podcasts I'm going to be doing in a while. Like I I love all the topics, but this one's kind of near and dear to my heart uh, because I grew up with pets, and uh, not that long ago found a dog on the street in Nashville, and it's just completely changed our world. So, uh, really curious to kind of hear your perspectives on how that you know how that human-animal bond changes people or affects people. But before we dive in, I did want to start with, as a child, what did you dream you'd be when you grew up? What was that? What was that early dream for you?
0: Well, you know, my early dreams were um, centered around animals as well. So I always thought I wanted to be a veterinarian for a long time. That was <laughs> what I thought I was going to be. And I, you know, found my way back into the animal profession. But when I got into college, I really developed a fascination with psychology. I think it's so fascinating how we interact with other people and the world around us. But I was able to sort of bring that interest of animals back into my interests with psychology, but I've always had that passion for animals.
1: That's awesome. And how, how did, you know, on this path to psychology, when when did the animals sneak back into the narrative for you?
0: Well, you know, the animals are always there in our lives, right? They have, I think that's the, the best thing about pets is that they're there for everything. Um, so, you know, it was always at the back of my mind. But when I was in graduate school and I, I was studying developmental psychology and really understanding what is it that helps you thrive and came across this emerging field of the psychology of human animal relationships. And I just thought, you know, what could be a more interesting thing to study, but how people's relationships with their animals um, help to enhance everyday life and especially for teenagers how they can um, really support thriving. A lot of times when we talk about teenagers we talk about the quote-unquote bad things that they do and I just thought that looking at the lens of human-animal relationships really helps us to explore the positive sides of teenagers and of anybody so it felt like a really nice way of combining those interests. Uh, I
1: I think that's Nice to hear for sure, because it does seem like it's a lot of the jokes of like the terrible teenagers and they're entitled and all that stuff. So I'm, I'm curious, what what was it about the like that age group that specifically was of curiosity to you?
0: Well, I think it's such a fascinating age. It's when we're really developing our social relationships. We're really starting to move from our social relationships being just the family to outside into the world and. Simultaneously developing a sense of purpose and drive in the world and teenagers are really passionate about many things and really figuring out what it is that personally drives them. And I think our relationships with animals are a really interesting window into that because they are a really important social relationship, but also can be a way that teenagers derive purpose and meaning and um, feeling a sense of connectedness to the rest of the world. So it, it's a great environment to study all these different things that are going on. The development of empathy, how we connect with other people, how we understand that what our needs and wants aren't the same as everybody else's. Interaction with animals is a great way to sort of unpack all of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think to uh, my teenage years, I grew up with dogs and I, I'd say like I've always had I'm um, my most loving self around animals, specifically dogs. I feel I still struggle with people. Like I still find that there's like a little bit of a lack of safety and a real sense of vulnerability. Of like this person can hurt me, but I don't think an animal has that intention. Although I think back to when I was, I think I was 19 or 18, and my first girlfriend had bought me a dog for my birthday. And I always like said, like oh, I had a dog growing up, like as a you know as a teenager and into my 20s. Then I think back, I'm like actually my parents took care of the dog. Like I wasn't really the one taking care of anything. And so on some level, I'm like, oof, I don't know if I would fail your study if you were like, yeah, there is one person who really didn't get it. They didn't really connect to the animal. Um, but I do think it's, I've never really been able to frame that out as I think I really learned love and the capacity of a human-animal bond. And uh, it's, it's so unique. So what is it about, uh, You know, if you could really explain the human-animal bond, is it as clear as it, as it sounds or is there more to it when, when, when you explain like the science of the human-animal bond?
0: There's really so much about it and what I think is so fascinating is that it looks different for different people and for different animals. Uh, even if you have relationships with multiple kinds of animals, I I think a lot of, you know, when you're talking about with your experience and the the sort of feelings of love and safety comes from this idea that pets feel like a non-judgmental type of social support. You know, they they are Present, but not um, bringing their own judgments to whatever the situation is. And sometimes that's what we need. I think sometimes as humans, we don't do a great job of just listening and affirming and maybe not jumping to what are we going to change? What are we going to do differently? And animals provide a space for that non judgmental emotional support. And so I, I do think that's a big part of it. And it really feels like animals bring their authentic self to the relationship. They're not bogged down in a lot of the other things that we as humans are bogged down in. And so I think for a lot of us, that feels like a really genuine and authentic connection. And so that, that might be some of the core underlying principles. Um, and then our perceptions of social support are really important in how we Perceive stress and how we adaptively cope with stress. If we feel like we have social support around us, that allows us to better cope with any types of stressors that come our way without getting overwhelmed by them. So it it links to not only that relationship that happens in the moment, but also how it might impact how we react to other things in our life.
1: Well, so what, what surprised you the most as you, as you explored the topic, was there anything that really was like totally a surprise to you or did it all just kind of line up with like, yeah, that, that, that all kind of makes good common sense.
0: So I, you know, one time I had a reporter ask me, why do you even study the human animal bond? Don't we just know the animals are good for us? And I think that's what I got into the field assuming is that our relationships with our pets are going to be universally beneficial. But in fact, that's, it's really not the case. Just like any other relationship, there are so many things that can impact it, whether it's the quality in that relationship, the amount of time that you spend with a pet, other types of pressures. Do you have access to food? Do you have access to affordable veterinary care? And so I think the thing that surprised me the most was how complex these relationships are and that they're not just a uh, panacea for everything that ails us, that we have to think about. Um, What are the things about these relationships with pets that are good and beneficial? Where are their challenges? And how can we help people overcome those challenges? And sort of normalize when there are challenges such as caring for a sick pet, um, that that doesn't make the relationship any less valid, but that we have to help people and support them through that relationship. So it's just much more complex than I think I really realized when I got into the field. But on the other hand, it makes it much more interesting. And I think it provides us the opportunity to help people and animals if we start to understand what some of those complexities are.
1: One of the, probably the most complex things I could imagine for me as it relates to pets, and it's probably for a lot of people, is it's like the first interaction, I imagine for a lot of people with death, right? It's like the, as children, we kind of see that and, and, and we work with that. Is that. Is that some of the stuff you've looked at in your studies as far as how that affects children,
0: how it affects teenagers? Absolutely, that's... The thing that nobody wants to talk about is that we often outlive our pets and what does that mean for our relationship with them? I I think for children in particular, it's actually a really important developmental opportunity to learn about death as part of the normal life cycle and to begin to understand what those feelings mean. I know I experienced that with my own children, um, having the loss of a pet and how that actually prepared them later on for when their grandfather passed away, that they had a conception of what this meant, um, what it was going to be to have that loss. So I I do think for children, it's a really important experience. We shouldn't view it as just a downside to having a pet, that it, it actually does help with practicing, managing these feelings. I think for adults, one of the big challenges is we, Actually, as a society, do not have a lot of great ways of dealing with death. We try to pretend like it doesn't happen. Um, And so really making sure that we have the space for having some rituals around remembering a pet, understanding that it is normal and appropriate to have grief around losing a pet that's similar to grief around losing a human, um, and and trying to provide some more support for that. So you know, while it is certainly not a pleasant experience for any of us to go through, I do think it's an area of growth for a lot of us to learn to be able to manage those feelings in a productive way.
1: How did you, like in your own family, if you're comfortable sharing it, how did you frame it in preparation for that moment? And then what were some of the rituals on the backside that allowed your family to really connect with what was happening?
0: Yeah, it was, um, so it was our our guinea pig actually who who passed away, and um, for my son who was three at the time, it was definitely the first time he had experienced death. So it gave us the opportunity to talk about what that means, right? So that she he kept asking a lot of questions about when is she coming back, and is she coming back, and where is she? And so it was a lot of sort of repetition of those types of things, talking about what it meant for that animal to die and then um there are types of rituals like thinking about the things that we remembered about her and what we enjoyed doing with her draw things about her and um having sort of a burial and that those types of things can help especially for children bring some kind of closure to it and that sort of gave him the structure for thinking about it when his grandfather passed away that he was able to connect that experience he already had with our guinea pig and you know talk about oh you know this is what happens because my grandfather died this is what it means and i think he was better able to process that. that's not to say it wasn't hard still but he uh, had some of the structure to think about that
1: yeah Uh, that's Oh, that's got to be a very confusing thing for a three-year-old. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's that, confusing
0: uh... for us as adults too. And just so yeah. you think about a three-year-old or even a five or six-year-old who's just grappling with that. Um, and the, the other thing that's interesting about pets is that because they live in our households uh, for children in particular, it can even be almost more upsetting for them to lose a pet than to maybe a relative that they don't spend a lot of time with. And I think just for parents to know that that, that's normal, that the pet's part of their everyday life and that is a real distraction in their daily routine. So just to sort of accept that and help them through it.
1: I have friends that have gone through situations where their pets got really sick and they had to kind of make this call of like, how much am I willing to invest in this circumstance? And it's you know, again, it's a family member for all practical purposes. As you said, they live in the home. How have you seen that come up in conversations of people kind of facing that? Like, I'm not an endless resource. Or am I actually being, am I lacking compassion by keeping the pet alive and this discomfort versus saying like, maybe it's time to go home?
0: This is one of the big challenges that we have as guardians of our pets is that unlike human relatives that we might be helping through this process, they can't tell us how they're feeling and what their wishes and desires are. So it puts us in the difficult position of trying to understand what their quality of life is and what they understand about the situation. So it's one of the most stressful parts of end of life for for pet owners and Making a decision about euthanasia can be really challenging, especially if it's not crystal clear. There might be some situations where yes, it's completely obvious, but often it's this sort of gray area where you're talking with the veterinarian who who knows a lot about what's going on with the medical situation, but might not be seeing what's happening with the animal on a daily basis. And what has been found in the research is that making this decision about euthanasia is one of the most stressful parts of the loss perhaps even more so than the actual loss of the pet. Um, that there might be feelings of guilt or grief around making this decision. And um, so it, it's really, it really is a challenge. It can be a, a burden on people to to try to feel like they're doing everything that they can for this beloved pet, but also not um, keeping them alive past the point at which their quality of life is diminished. And that's a very hard decision to make and it's really It's this double-edged sword of you as the person who lives with this animal is probably has the most information to make this decision, but it's also the hardest to get perspective on because this is a member of your family.
1: Have you found that, like, are there any best practices, belief systems, anchors that, I mean, I, I understand there's really no way we could ever know what the animal actually wants, but I would also assume that there's probably something that has worked better where you say, look, I've observed someone... Processing this better than someone who said, I'm just going to ride it all the way to the end, or like, hey, we're cutting it off right now.
0: I think it is really important to have a veterinarian that you have a good relationship with who can give you the information that you need so you feel confident in making this decision. Not that the veterinarian is going to be the one telling you what you should or shouldn't do, but giving you information so you feel like when you've made that decision, you can feel confident that you did the right thing. I think that's the most important part is feeling comfortable with that decision i think the other piece that's important to remember is that um animals don't perceive length of life in the same way that we do and so sometimes it's hard to not put our human conception on them and that's just hard to understand you know how much are they suffering in the moment for what type of extended lifespan and understanding that that calculus might be different for an animal than it is for a human
1: that's yeah that's a great perspective I imagine we often do that. We project our experience onto we everything do. around us, I mean, answer, cars, right?
0: Anthropomorphism is a really interesting concept when we're talking about human-animal relationships and how we humanize their behaviors and their actions. I mean, even if you think of everything from children's movies that depict animals and are they depicting them as people who are standing upright and dressed in human clothes? Are they talking? What are they saying? What, you know, We put all of our human conceptions onto animals. And on the one hand, it can elevate the status of animals in society because if we feel like animals are closer to us, more like us, we're more likely to invest our time and resources in caring for them because they're part of our inner circle. On the other hand, are we assuming things about them that are not true? And are we um, assuming that they had the same wants and needs and desires as we do? So it's a really interesting double-edged sword.
1: So now we're going to, I mean, I appreciate we started on the dark stuff, right? We went right to the hard conversation that most people are like, I'm avoiding this reality as much as I can. When my dog licks me, does he love me or is it the salt?
0: That's a great question. And you know what? I honestly don't know the answer to that. I'm glad a little you bit don't. Both. That's a great one. I'm glad one.
1: you don't know, actually. I'm glad if you say because I'm like worried someone's going to say, no, it's just the salt. Right. But, uh, I really, because like to that point of, you know, I do see it as like, this is an expression of love and care. And then on some level, I'm like, I actually don't care what it is. If it makes me feel that way, good enough. I'm right, going to stick right. with that narrative. It seems to serve my, my experience of being connected to them. But to that end, I think that so many of us have our funny ways of speaking to our pets and we do interpret their behaviors in certain way. Is there any way to really better understand where pets are? And I will asterisk with this, uh, I recently spoke to a pet communicator. And again, I know that that's out there, probably does not fit in the world of psychology or science at all. But have you seen anything that, from a scientific perspective, you could say, actually, there are better ways to understand what this means, and is it the vet or is it somebody else?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and there's a lot of great dog behavior folks and cat behavior folks uh, out there now who are doing wonderful work of trying to translate what we know about animal behavior to. Um, methods that the public will be able to consume. And so there's just a lot of great research going on right now. Now, my research is more on the human behavior side of things. So I'm not as much of an expert on animal behavior, but folks who are experts in this area, the science is just incredible. Uh, that's really developing about how we view different types of behaviors, what different behaviors actually mean, you know, something that Um, a dog is doing that we might interpret as one thing. I'll give you just a quick example, which is yawning. So typically when we see someone, a person yawn, we assume that they're tired, right? Or they've caught a yawn from someone else. Um, With dogs, yawning can mean a number of different things, including stress. So some, you know, we have to be careful about interpreting behaviors we see in animals as human behaviors when they're not. And a lot of these behaviors are doing just great work on translating these behaviors for the general public, the general pet owners, so that they can better understand their pets. I think a lot of people really want to understand their pets, and giving people the science tools to do that is important. And then there's a lot of really interesting brain research going on right now about dog cognition and, you know, what dogs are perceiving, what that means in terms of their brain activity. Um, there's just some fascinating science going on around just what's happening <laughs> in their brains. <laughs>
1: That's really cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna look more into that stuff for sure. And I, I think kind of going forward from I, I thought we were gonna stay out of the darkness, but now we're gonna go back a little bit to the darkness. When I'm curious about like depression, anxiety, you know, a lot of the conditions that we're seeing, like there's a huge mental health crisis, obviously at least in the U.S., probably in other parts of the world as well. What is the science saying about the effects of pet ownership, having a pet in your home, as it relates to those kind of things?
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that is the question that a lot of people are interested in. Basically, can pets help support our mental health? And what's interesting is that the research is complicated about it. Um, we see some research that shows that having a pet might be beneficial, um, but we show other, um, other research shows that it's not. And what's really fascinating about this is that we don't have, um, the ability to do studies like we would with You know, say, a new drug for depression. We're going to do a randomized control trial where half the people get the drug, half the people get a placebo, and we see what the difference is. Because you can't do that with pets, right? People want to decide whether or not they have a pet and what type of pet they have. So it's hard to get around the fact that people who have pets may be fundamentally different for people who don't. Um, and that people may also choose to get a pet because they're feeling lonely or they're feeling anxious and they feel like having a pet might help them with that. So then if you look at, well, do pet owners have higher anxiety than those who don't? um, That's kind of muddling the the effect findings. So the research is just a little bit less clear on that. And and what we're looking at now is can we have more longer-term studies where we can see over time what are the effects of having uh, but, you know, a lot of the mechanisms are there. We think that, especially for people who are living alone, who might be feeling lonely, having a companion in the household could help reduce that loneliness. Um, for folks who might be anxious about being out in the world by themselves, having you know a pet with you might help with that. So it's just a little bit more of a complicated answer than I think maybe the general media would lead you to believe that getting a pet will um, solve all of our mental health challenges.
1: I mean, in your personal experience or just, you know, even if it's a a non-professional perspective, uh, are there times where you'd say someone should definitely not get a pet? Because I do think a lot of people are trying to solve something or fill a hole or find something that they don't currently have. Are there times you'd say, absolutely not, do not do that, or I'd recommend not?
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I don't know if I I have sort of a hard and fast answer about that, but I I do think that thinking carefully about how a pet would fit into your life is always really important um, to make sure that expectations meet reality. I think that's, that's where we want to be careful is that um, when we're maybe putting a little bit too much on the pet, that we're, we might be expecting them to completely cure us of whatever it is, that that, that might not be a reasonable expectation and understanding that Pets are also a lot of work and that, you know, there's some stress associated with it. So I don't don't think that I would ever tell anybody not to get a pet, but just to sort of think through the decision carefully to make sure it's a good fit for their life.
1: Moving into the therapy animal side of things, you know, again, I'm curious to hear more about the program first of all, so we could start there, if you could tell us a little bit about what you are doing with, uh, what was the program called again?
0: So our program at Tufts is called Tufts Paws for People, but we are a chapter of this national organization, Pet Partners, which is um, a big national group that has done a lot of work of really trying to professionalize therapy animals so that um, we know that teams are well-trained, that they um, are safe and have all these health requirements. And there's been just a huge amount of work over the last several decades in turning um, animal assisted interventions or interventions involving therapy animals into a really high quality therapeutic practice. And so therapy animals work in all kinds of different settings. They might work with um, mental health professionals. They might work with physical therapy, occupational therapy. There are just so many different ways in which therapy animals can be uh, integrated into different types of interventions. And what's great about therapy animals is that they are so motivational for people, <laughs> that um, you you know it's so much more enjoyable to engage in whatever that therapeutic activity is when there is an animal there. So really helps to increase enjoyment in whatever the intervention is and really motivate people to continue with it.
1: What's some of the examples of applications where you've seen great success?
0: So there there have been a lot of. Um, well, what's really interesting is the biggest request we get right now is for college stress relief programs. College students are feeling the effects of the pandemic and stressors, and um, having these programs where during final exam period, we bring in therapy animals and you know into the library. And when they want to take a break from studying, they can come interact with the animals. And just as a way of de-escalating the anxiety in a, you know, short but Um, I think, really powerful way. So those programs are really popular. There are lots of therapy animal programs that work in hospital settings that will go um, around to folks who are staying in a hospital, which is obviously a very stressful situation. And um, even just that short contact with a therapy animal can help reduce that momentary stress or anxiety.
1: If I had therapy animals in my college, I probably wouldn't have dropped out.
0: Right? I mean... It's that a lot awesome. of in college, a lot of students are really missing their pets at home. That that was an important way of how they coped with their stress and anxiety that's now not with them. So that can be a nice little bridge for them.
1: How how is the therapy animal trained? I mean, I'm curious what what is a therapy animal in that context doing that a an untrained animal might not do?
0: So um mostly the evaluation process is around um Well, first of all, does that animal enjoy interacting with people? That's the first part that you really want them to enjoy being with lots of different people and greeting them, but also that they are used to things like hospitals have, even something like the floor is very unusual for a dog, the different smells, the different machines, sights, sounds, noises, That they're accustomed to all of that. So it's not stressful for them and that they're behaving in a calm and appropriate way. And then also the handler is screened as well to make sure that the handler is really being a good partner for their dog or their other animal. Um, And, you know, I think what's great about these trained therapy animals is that they um, really interact with people in a calm and safe way. And maybe having your own dog with you would be great. But, you know, you think about maybe bringing your dog into a hospital setting with lots of stuff going on. You really want to have a dog that's used to that setting.
1: With regards to, um, you know, I've heard a lot of the belief that people are generally mirrors to us. Like, if we're triggered by someone, there's some aspect of them we, you know, we we don't want to admit in ourselves. Versus if we really adore someone, maybe there's an aspect of us that we really appreciate about ourselves. Are animals mirrors in the same way? Have you found in the bond that that ends up being part of it, or is it very different?
0: That's that's a really good question. I wish I had a true scientific answer for that. Um, it would be fascinating to look at that from a research perspective. That's sort of always where my brain is going. I I do think that because of this anthropomorphism, we do tend to sort of project things onto animals because they're not able to as clearly correct us as maybe other people are. So there is that, I don't know if I would call it a danger, but just something that we have to watch out for that when we're projecting our feelings onto animals, what does that mean for them? What about
1: like um, horses, for example? I, I've heard a lot more lately about, uh, I think it's called like equus training or something like that, where they're putting people in these contexts where they're saying, hey, we're going to train you how you're showing up as a leader. Have you, have you interacted with that stuff at all?
0: So I'm a lifelong verse person, so <laughs> I always love all to right. talk about horses. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Horses are fascinating because they are just extremely intelligent, very social creatures that have very complex social behaviors with each other, but they're very different from dogs. Um, and they obviously don't live in our homes. So uh, they're just, uh, you know, I could talk for hours about horses. But anyway, um, they're, they are definitely being integrated more into therapeutic settings. So um, therapeutic services with horses are really popular, especially um, physical therapy, occupational therapy, just the movement of a horse can be really a really powerful therapeutic tool, but also mental health treatment as well. So I I think what you're sort of referring to is that there is some work around how horses' behavior might reflect our behavior. And there are some programs that do a lot of work in that area where, for example, if you walk towards a horse with really threatening body language, they are going to hightail it out of there. They They will see that and they will reflect that back in their own behavior. And so it can be um, really interesting for people to better understand their own behavior and also how horses interact with each other and what that might tell you about what you're projecting into the world.
1: Talking about society as a whole, like one one of the, the bigger things I was very curious about is obviously animals get treated very differently in different societies, different parts of the world. Is there any correlation between how the human-animal bond has developed in a place and then like the societal stability or structure or anything like that?
0: This is a very timely thing to talk about because I think our field of human-animal interaction is really starting to have a reckoning with the fact that the field has been built on a very Western perspective of what it means to have a pet and what the ideal human-animal bond should be. And I think we're starting to recognize that there is a lot of cultural variation in how people interact with animals. That doesn't have to be a good or a bad binary. It's just different, and that there's different ways that people respect and interact with animals. So I, I wouldn't I would hesitate to say that the way animals are treated sort of directly correlates to certain values in a society. But it, it is um, it's just different, and we have to. Um, be careful about putting our lens about the human animal bond onto a context where it may not be appropriate or we may not fully understand what that relationship looks like.
1: Yeah, I know the, the West likes to think we got it all figured out from exactly. the most evolved perspective, but it's like I've not spent time in Asia. I'm very interested in going over the next year. And I have heard people say, like, it's very different seeing how dogs are treated in parts of Asia where they're just running around the streets. And here we are, like, God forbid they eat a grape. You know right. we're gonna have a whole big thing and they're like they're eating garbage over there um but you know again I, I i don't understand it and it's an interesting lens to say i don't know maybe we've imposed something on them that they didn't really necessarily ask for well i mean they can't ask for it anyway but
0: right right yeah exactly and uh, yeah there's just so much I, I think approaching it with a curious mindset is really the way to go because um, sometimes there are aspects of different ways of interacting with animals that maybe we haven't considered before. And I think what I've learned is that there's different ways of respecting animals in different circumstances.
1: Are you seeing, you know, when you're saying this is a timely conversation, are you seeing more openness to these different perspectives?
0: Definitely, or at least I think within the scientific community in trying to expand our perspectives and make sure that the science is not based on just one perspective. Um, But I think it also translates to maybe the wider world. I mean, obviously, we're in a very challenging place just in the world right now where there's a lot of division. And I think it's worth considering how connection around animals may be a way of connecting people together around a shared interest or a shared, a shared connection that who may not otherwise be interacting with each other, but that pets or animals in general can be a really great social facilitator. And it's some common ground to build the types of relationships that you might need to interact around more difficult issues.
1: So kind of the you know the whole point of the show for me has been around how do we cultivate fulfillment? And are there any studies that have really correlated life fulfillment with pet ownership and pet relationships?
0: I wish that there were because I do think that a sense of purpose and as you said, fulfillment is this sort of underlying thread that we see in a lot of these relationships. And I, I don't know of anybody who's really measured that or captured that, but- Um, even just thinking about the mindfulness aspect of say, taking your dog for a walk for a moment, you're not with your face in your phone and then you're experiencing the world with them. And can they help us live a little bit more in the present? So I I would love for somebody to do that, that study, but I, I do think animals have a lot to teach us in terms of being in the moment and not letting, all of the noise get to us too
1: much. Yeah, I mean, my, my story of getting my dog was, uh, my fiance and I were just driving in Nashville and this little puppy ran in front of our car. And long story short, we ended up keeping the dog and bringing him home. and What was interesting is I played it back had it not happened in such a magical way. And it was this very ridiculous, long two-day story adventure. I think it would have been the kind of thing where I would have gotten the dog. I never had a puppy before. I didn't realize puppies and dogs are very different animals. Yes. And so suddenly (laughs) I have this puppy in my apartment and he's wrecking everything and peeing on the floor. And I went from like, I've made it. I'm at the peak of my freedom in my life in New York City. And suddenly I'm like, I'm on a three-hour clock with a bladder that just wants to pee on everything. And it was this huge transition of like wow i lost most of the freedoms i had before and yet found so much joy at the same time yes and it like it opened up that curiosity of it's you know the more I've, the more people talk about the west and like our pursuit of this like insane level of freedom and optionality but it doesn't seem to correlate to fulfillment and happiness mm. and i'm like I, I wonder if on some level giving away some of that freedom was actually the thing that made me happier because now i had these constraints and i had limitations and I reduced my options, and I was so much happier. So I've, I've been thinking a lot about that. As you know, thank God I found him, versus I had gotten him from somewhere that I could have brought him back to. Because I would have been like, oh, I didn't realize I didn't want this right now. But uh, it was honestly one of the most amazing transitions, both for me personally and in my relationship to my fiance. It's like we really, we really shifted in saying, oh, now we have this beautiful common goal of also taking care of this this little guy, and he's so sensitive to our emotions. If oh, she and I right. are like, if we're, if we're like a little amped up, he will leave the room. He's like, I cannot be here for this. And so uh, I would love to see more science on this stuff. But I mean, I think that the common sense and the practical approach do seem to dictate that most of the people I know anyway with pets seem happier for having them, even during that, even on the other side of that hard transition of like, oh, I did not anticipate how difficult this was going to be.
0: Sure. I, I think that's a great perspective because there's something to be said for where we spend our time. It's... Is where our values are and there's something about spending that time caring for an animal that um, feels like sort of a showing value to have.
1: And so all that said, I mean, you're obviously doing some really cool work and it sounds like the young version of you would be super happy with where you ended up. What is your dream beyond at this point?
0: Well, I, I think to really continue to understand what these relationships are. But I think the most important part about doing research in this area is how can we use what we're finding to make people and animals' lives better? So I think that's where sometimes science falls short is we we really ask these questions and then the answers just go into the void. So um, if, how can we use the scientific tools that we have to improve the lives of people and animals, that's really the goal. I mean, that's why we're all doing what it is that we're doing. So really trying to keep that in mind. Um, and and then I think also, you know, I'm a scientist, so I'm really pragmatic. Sometimes we get bogged down in the details of the science, but also trying to remember all of us that there's something about the magic of these relationships that's what makes them so powerful and making sure that we remember that that's a really important piece of the whole picture.
1: Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Well, I, I, I took a lot from this. I'll, you know, just some of the big takeaways for me are really going back to that chance to be intentional about death and loss and, uh, you know, still find presence in that and experience it fully and find a way to ritualize those experiences after they've happened and really take the gift that comes along with it. And, uh, Really this idea that we we can never truly know what our pets want, that drives me nuts. I imagine it drives so many people nuts, but you're right, I never really thought about that it is a greater sense of responsibility for me to choose what I do for my pet than what I would do for a family member who at least can verbalize something and tell me what their desires are. That is a a great challenge. Um, And the reminder of having a great vet, it's something that I always saw a vet as like a technician. It's like, you bring your car, just change my oil, like let's get it done. But really, to see a vet as a person who really is a partner in helping you navigate this incredible responsibility for something that most of us love with a capacity that we, you know, maybe only reserve for our children. And the beauty of the, you know, th- that reminder that despite all the science, and I think this isn't just for you know the pet pet and human connection or the animal human connection, but I think it's in most scientific places is to not lose the magic. I love that. I love hearing someone who's in the world of science saying, "Let's not forget that this is about the magic, and we're all just doing our best job." to try to quantify the magic in a way that we can understand, but we'll never be able to fully, fully decipher it. And so to allow the space for that and the potential for that. So this is really phenomenal. And again, it's I'm gonna go give my dog a hug as soon as we get done with this. That's this is great. Really Me amazing. too. And That's right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate the work you do. And uh, I'm really excited to see what other what other research comes to the surface that can help validate some of this stuff. And for anyone who's interested to learn more about the research lab. Uh, we're going to put the link in the show notes, and you could also learn more about the Therapy Animal Group as well with one of the links that we'll put in there. And Megan, again, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I hope everyone has just felt a little bit more love for the pets that are and, and the animals that are in their life.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Our pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Dream Beyond. I hope that you received whatever message or inspiration you were meant to get from today's episode. I had a great time recording it for you. If you love the show, please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review it. That really helps get the word out. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Instagram.com slash LinkedIn.com slash in slash Nick or YouTube.com slash N